podcast one production. For as long as we've been human, we've been telling stories. Stories tell us who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. Now, we used to tell those stories around the fire. These days, we tell them on the screens of four and a half billion smartphones. The way we tell stories, that's changed a lot. But the stories themselves, they remain the same. Now, if you jumped back just a billion seconds, that's 1988. The Berlin Wall is still up. The web isn't even a brainwave. And the landscape of storytelling is dominated by two media, film and television. So come forward to today, and yes, film and television still exist. They still reach billions. But so do other forms of media. Everything from animated GIFs to streaming music to virtual reality to podcasts. Entertainment has changed more in the past billion seconds than anyone could have imagined. And it's about to change even more. Good day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work and play. On this third series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. A future where the lines between our stories and our reality begins to blur. A future where everyone gets to help produce and promote their favorite stories. The future of entertainment owes a lot to the past of entertainment, but it doesn't look a lot like that past. To explore this future, we'll divide this episode into two interviews. In part one, we'll talk to the team from StartVR who have produced one of the outstanding works of modern virtual reality and are pointing the way toward what films will become. In the second half, we'll talk to a studio production executive developing a new way to bring audiences into the filmmaking process, converting them to rabid fans. Both of these stories tell us something about the future of entertainment, a future open for exploration on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. I've been working in virtual reality for nearly 30 years. Now, in the earliest days, we didn't have high expectations. We just wanted things to work and not make you motion sick. Still, even back then, there were a few outstanding works. Placeholder by Brenda Laurel and Rachel Strickland. Osmos by Shar Davies. Each of these gave me a clear sense of the incredible potential of virtual reality as a storytelling medium, that it could quite literally take you out of yourself and put you into another place, another time, even another being. And then VR went dormant for 20 years. When it came roaring back three years ago, everything that had been hard or expensive was suddenly cheap and easy, at least for the tech. Storytelling is another matter. Because as soon as we got all of this new VR and we could make the stories we always wanted to tell, 
that's when it became clear that having the tech doesn't mean you have the power to tell those stories. Storytelling is rich and complicated and takes time to learn. It takes a lot more time to learn when you're working in a new medium with no established rules for storytelling, without a language for telling those stories. But when you see an attempt, and it works... That's absolutely thrilling. It's like hearing a new word uttered for the first time. And it's my great pleasure to welcome three guests to the next billion seconds who have done just that. Late in 2018, the VR production Awake went into wide release, a deep, dense, layered, and surprisingly emotional bit of virtual reality storytelling. It left me speechless, and it took me a long time to sort through my own feelings. Those feelings included wonder, delight, and amazement because I could see this new language of this new medium being created and put to work right in front of me. And that's when I knew I wanted to invite Kane Tietzel, Nathan Anderson, and Martin Taylor, respectively the CEO of StartVR, the producer and director of Awake, on to the next billion seconds to talk to them about this work and what it says about where we're going in our ability to tell stories. Gentlemen, welcome to the next billion seconds. Good morning. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. All right. Let's start with Awake. Just tell us briefly what it is. Awake is a two-part story. It's, it's essentially a, um, uh, it's a love story at, at its heart, but it also has a lot of very big themes around uh, the, the nature of reality and uh, lucid dreaming and um, uh, kind of doorways from the real world through to the imagined world. And, and Martin, these are the kinds of things that are in some sense easier to show inside of virtual reality because you really do have control of someone's senses in a way that you really don't with cinema or with a, just a screen on a smartphone. I, I think one of the important things about VR is how you go into the experience in the first place. And I think the theme of dreaming kind of suspends your disbelief a little bit and you kind of understand that anything can happen. So that's a good place to start. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so you, you are breaking down reality. You are taking uh, audiences to um, uh, you know, wildly different places. And so VR is absolutely perfect for that. So how do you then, I guess, balance... The, the weight between being able to do basically anything you want and the fact that you actually have to take audiences on a story, that it's not just a ride in that sense. I mean, we've seen a lot of virtual reality, which is really just sort of flashing lights and acceleration. And that's the kind that tends to make people motion sick versus the kind where, yes, you have this enormous expressive capacity, but you're really using it to tell a story. One of the things that um, I've been looking for in, in VR is to experience a story that has a real um, emotional resonance. And so that was what we were you know, going for with this uh, piece. And so that's where you start. You really start with a human story. It's a, a story between two characters. It's a story of love and loss and, and, and all those kind of um, universal themes that we all relate to. And if you ground it in that with great dialogue, great performances, um, a really clear uh, character arc, then that that's a good basis to hang all of these big themes off, and you can you know from there you know go wild. All right. So Nathan, 
Martin's talking like the director, right? This is the story. He's bringing the story to life, but you're the producer. You actually have to bring all of the elements together. VR is still very new. Now, we can borrow some of these elements from, say, the way we make films or the way we make video games, but we're still talking about doing something new here. How far along are we? Because I'm getting the sense that even though we're three years into modern virtual reality, we're still very much in the very early days around this kind of storytelling and that you basically have to roll everything yourself. Is that, is that true? Yeah, Mike, I, I definitely think we are really at the beginning of this phase. If you look at other modern media platforms such as film or even TV, you know, we're, we're looking at a very long history of progression there, 100 years for the film industry to, to get to the point it is now. So if you consider that on the same timeline, we're, we're not even at the beginning yet. We're just learning how to to start to explore the storytelling in this uh, in this platform. So, you know, I think we had the first few years, and you mentioned it before, of, um, of sensory input, where we looked at VR as a kind of a tool for, um, yeah, for stimulus, not for intellectual um, participation. And that's sort of, that's only just starting to occur now. And I think with these sorts of projects, that's really what we're trying to do is start to explore that language and build a grammar that is a bit of, um, you know, a bit of all different sort of existing storytelling platforms. So we, we often talk about film, but really there's a lot of different other contributors in terms of theatre, even radio, and, and lots of other um, components that build towards what we think is VR storytelling. So, Keen, are, are we seeing enough of a market in the sense of a global audience for the kinds of stories that we're able to tell now. And in other words, with Awake being out there and getting some reasonable uh, success and recognition, does this start to grow a, a market so that, you know, in the early days of television, there were only a few million TVs, but of course now there's a few billion TVs. Are we going to see that same kind of progression here? I think we will. I think the technology is inevitable. I think the consumption of it will change dramatically over time. We're all, you know, this is a brand new technology, a brand new set of hardware and, you know, an expense to a consumer that has to fit into their regular lives and they have to incorporate it in ways that then has to sit alongside other media, whether that's listening to Spotify or Netflix and, you know, other projects like that or content like that. So as the technology becomes more affordable, um, more accessible, more easy to sort of pick up and put down, which we'll start to see with this next round of hardware like the Oculus Quest and these more portable devices, we'll start to see the consumer adoption rates really sort of start to take off. And with that will become, you know, the business uh, opportunity for you know, developers like ourselves to get a, a strong return on investment for creating that type of content and that will kickstart the ecosystem. Listening to all of you, there's this sense not just that it's early days and you're very happy to be on the leading edge of all of this, but that you actually have to push at all of these boundaries at once. You have to push at the creative boundary, you have to push at the production boundary, and you have to push at the industry boundary all at once. What is your vision? Why Why do you get out of bed and do this every morning? And each of you can sort of have a whack at that, Martin. Do you want to sort of start off with that? Pushing the boundaries is the most exciting part of what we're doing. You know, the we're helping to define the rules. We're seeing how far we can take it. Um, we're giving genuinely new experiences to people out there. And, um, you know, as, as far as this project goes, for example, virtual reality is the only medium that is available to tell this particular story. You know, it, it's I've been trying to express these dream experiences that I've had for much of my life 
in in various forms, and um, you just have to invite somebody directly inside the experience. Right, and that this to touch on this because I wanted to touch on this. You're a lucid dreamer. You've been lucid dreaming for a long a number of years, right? Since I was yeah three or four. Okay, so you've always lucid dreamed. So really, part of what you were doing is trying to give people a window into the world that you have regularly experienced. Have you seen people come out of the work? sort of with a better sense of that? I think you ask anybody and even the people that say they don't remember their dreams, once you start probing a little bit and they go, oh, actually, no, I did, I do remember that one. I do remember that one. It's, it's, it's something that we all do um, and even whether we consciously remember or not, um, it, the, the kind of ways of getting around the dream world and, and the kind of themes and narratives that, that exist... Um, are with all of us. And so the reaction we get from people coming out is there is definitely a sense that they recognize something about it. They don't really know what it is, but it feels somehow natural. And, you know, Awake is about dreams and it's, you know, thematically around that, which is perfect for virtual reality. But also I'm trying to adopt dream navigation techniques to telling a story in virtual reality. I think there's a lot more akin to dreams than there are to film narrative, uh, film grammar, for example. And so, yeah, it's, it's a good reaction from people coming out. They, they kind of, it feels natural and um, they, everybody takes something different away from the story. So, Nathan, what gets you out of bed in the morning when you say, okay, I'm going to produce something that no one's ever made before? Yeah, I, I probably don't think of it that literally. I, for me, I suppose VR as an industry is, is it's it's like a it's a new field it's a new playing space which really interests me. I've always operated in the fringes of I guess traditional media and, and digital media, and I think each when I talk talk about digital media, I, I guess I'm including you know games and interactivity in that as well. And and I think each one has something to offer an audience if you think about it that way. Obviously, story has an, an emotional, uh, powerful impact, but but games have an agency and a sense of control and. I think f- when I sort of started looking into this space and, and getting more excited about it several years back, it really, for me, felt like it was the perfect perfect convergence and nexus of these two things where you can have agency and, and feel in control but also be taken on a very uh, sort of story, cinematic experience as well. And I think that's what really excites me, the, the idea that VR can actually provide us in some way uh, an access to a new experience uh, as audiences that we haven't had before. Uh, and that's, you know, it's a really interesting thing to be involved in. So, King, you and Nathan started Start VR to, to basically do this, right? But you also started it, what was it, three years ago now when you started? So Martin, Nathan, and I started it three and a half years three ago. Three and a half years ago. Yeah. So, but this was a big call back then, right? When you yeah. didn't really know where things were going to go or how they were going to develop. People had very high hopes. What does it take to sort of put yourself out there like that and say, okay, we're going to establish ourselves in a medium that really kind of doesn't exist yet? I guess touching on what you were saying earlier, um, or asking, you know, what gets us up in the morning. When people find out that I work in VR, their minds boggle for a second, and then they ask, how did you end up there? How did, how did you get into that? And it was inevitable. It was always going to happen. I think, you know, um, all of our careers have always been either in storytelling or that crossover between interactive and digital. But specifically to why VR is that this is the next transformative type of communication. Like, this is the next... Thing after mobile and the internet. And uh, these are the golden days where we get to experiment and find out what's what's possible and what's not possible, what works, what doesn't work. That for me is what's really the most exciting part. I mean, you think about the internet 
was was a wealth of opportunity. We didn't know what it was going to look like. Um, but now it's mostly just Facebook, Google search, you know. And fake news. And fake news, yeah. And web, you know, page templates just look the same. All the innovation has somewhat sort of disappeared, I think, from that as a medium. But we're still in this golden era now where we really do get to change and transform that. So when we started three and a half years ago, we knew we were on the, the crest of the wave. And we needed to jump on now because we didn't want to jump in later. And being on the crest of that wave means that we are breaking things and learning and, you know, staying on the cutting edge, but that also means that we're finding things first. We're finding things that work. We're finding out the business models. We're establishing a, a commercial base where you know we've got strong customers behind us that understand how we're proving out this technology as being real and tangible. So it was always our decision to sort of get to market and stay in the market and be there for when the final you know, market really sort of rose up around us. Martin, I'm going to ask you a question that's a little complicated. The beginning of modern cinema is, of course, a very, uh, it's a film that no one really wants to like, which is Birth of a Nation, right? And if you've seen Black Klansman, it goes in at length about why that's such a problematic film. But it's also considered the first modern film. How far are we away from a moment, hopefully less problematic, but in virtual reality where we can actually point to it and say that is now the beginning of formal, the formal medium as a medium? Does it feel close? Because I can see in a wake that we're, we're clearly getting some of the pieces there. It doesn't feel like it's all the way there yet. To, to me, it feels like the, um, the immersive media market and um, you know as a form of storytelling and so it's it's vr but it's also ar and it's it's this kind of next level of of storytelling in 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 altered realities it feels to me like we're approaching the kind of second industrial revolution in in that in that particular sphere in, in that we've had the first wave of individual ideas and individual components and and lots of push and drive to kind of you know get that perfect. Now it feels like there's a consolidation process that is happening, which is really exciting, where all of the kind of key components are, the the, the dots are being joined. And, um, you know, really that's about um, bringing, you know, the production costs down and the, all the practical side of things, getting it into ma- many more people's hands and, and things like that. And, and the great thing is that all of that vehicle that is kind of evolving and reshaping all of the, t- the time and becoming more accessible to more people is the vehicle that is carrying these stories along the way. And so really, you know, from my job and our, our job as a company is to keep pushing at the edge, keep, you know, um, like prodding the kind of bleeding edge of what is possible so that we're always there wherever the front is. And, um, you know, I, it feels like... I mean, the thing about I'm very, very proud of with Awake is that when people see it, they've never seen anything quite like it. I would, I can only concur with that. You're absolutely right. Um, and and so what we're doing is carrying on with that um, uh, value in mind. In, in in that, no matter where the technology is, no matter how many people are can see it, we're going to be pushing as as hard as we can. And and so it's it's it's. You know, very, very close. A year, two years. Um, uh, it's it's really every day more and more people are going to be able to get, get access to these stories. Nathan, I, I, there's an almost a sort of an A and a B. A couple of weeks before I saw Awake, I saw Spheres, which is this very big Darren Aronofsky executive produced piece. And I saw it and I was like, oh, it's nice. It's, it's nice. It's lovely. It does one thing. It does that one thing super well, but it does one thing. Whereas Awake, it was like it didn't do, it was doing all the things. And 
so you also see that there's almost different ways people are going to approach the medium as a producer, right? They're going to do, okay, we're just going to do this one thing because we know we can just ring that bell. But then you, you're going to see other people who are going to try to actually tell the whole story. Do we see a way that both of, do both of those go on into the future? Or is this thing sort of going to be more like a whole bunch of one-trick ponies and that's going to sort of peter out? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if we know the answer to that yet. I think um, much like a lot of VR content creation at the moment, there's, there's a lot of gut feel and let's just go and try and try to do this and see what happens. And, and Awake is somewhat an example of that. We certainly know from a narrative point of view what we're trying to do, but from a format and a, so, yeah, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different things. We're looking at a story, but we're also looking at a, a format, which is what's the product and the package that audiences are going to consume? How will they consume it? And who are the people that are going to be involved to make it? There's a lot of different new technologies we're working on here and, and volumetric capture being one of them. So, um, you know, really all we need to do is, is, as long as we're going in a new direction, we feel it hasn't, hasn't been kind of covered before. I think we're happy with that because we, we, we don't know where we're going to land. And in some ways, it's a bit like a Star Trek episode. We're going into the unknown and, and maybe that's all we need to do as long as you can return to tell the story. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I think the, one of the challenges, and I was thinking this before when you, when you spoke right now from a commercial perspective in the industry, we have a requirement to produce very high quality experiences because they're, they're needed as a catalyst, if you like, to bring in audiences. And the problem is the audiences aren't necessarily there in their masses at the moment. So we can't monetize that kind of high quality experience. It's a chicken and egg, uh, scenario where, we need to put money on screen to make it look good. Uh, you know, and this is not a, a challenge specific, particular to VR. This isn't in all media when they're emerging. Um, but until we have enough audience, it's hard to put money on the screen. So that, that's one of the challenges we need to work at. So ways that we can cover projects like this that can kind of drive a little wedge in and, and experiment in some ways are really kind of, I guess, the way we're doing it. And we've seen other producers do that as well. Kane, we're going to give you the last word here. I mean, I want you to look forward a little bit. And, and we can say look forward a billion seconds, so 30 years. Is VR or whatever VR has evolved into, has that become the dominant medium in the same way that television a billion seconds out after its invention had also eaten cinema in the same way? Are we seeing that same transition taking place? Uh, that's always a good one asking what's going to happen in 30 years' time. You can take it out 10, it's fine. We don't need to go out the full billion seconds. <laughs> Look, the technology spectrum of XR, extended reality, which covers all the different VR, ARs and MRs, is, um, you know, has been called the final medium. And when you think about it, it does offer stability to actually have all the different mediums inside of it. So we can have radio, we can have television, we can have podcasts, we can have theatre, we can have you know, a brand new form of storytelling that we are you know, in the process of trying to reinvent. So it enables us to have all of those medium in one place. So yes, in that respect, I do believe it will be all-encompassing and how we dip in and out of it, that's what's going to be interesting. Kane, Martin, Nathan, thank you very much for joining us on the next billion seconds. Thank you, Martin. Thanks so much. It's been great. When most people think about how movies and TV shows get made, they picture a soundstage with the director barking at an actor and cameras and lighting and all of that. And while it is technically how movies get made, it's actually the smallest part of the story. Before any of that, there's an enormous amount of work that involves getting a good story, getting a good producer, raising money, then finding all of the talent on screen and off screen that need to come together to make a production happen. And none of that is easy. And that's why a truly great 
film or truly great TV series, it's rare because all of those pieces have to come together perfectly for it to work. Now, for nearly 100 years, the studios have had a particular way of doing all of this, but there are other, more modern models of entertainment production, and David Baxter is at the forefront of this evolving landscape of entertainment production, so we're going to talk to him about what that looks like over the next billion seconds. Welcome, David. Hi, Mark. Tell us something about what you do and where you do it. So I am a development executive at a production company. And development executive in Hollywood language means something very specific. Absolutely. So what a development executive does is he or she either reads material that has been submitted to the company and then makes an analysis of whether that uh, particular piece of material makes sense uh, for the company to move forward on. Uh, they also, uh, you know, read articles, uh, look around in the world to see what's going on. To so see you're the eyes a, and ears in a lot of ways. Uh, well, I'm certainly the first line of defense. So the principles of the company uh, usually will come together uh, to make a final, uh, what they call a green light, whether the company's going to commit to something. But uh, I'm the person who... Uh, takes care of all the getting through all the the stuff that comes at us because right. there's and you're turning over all the rocks is that interesting is that interesting is that in- oh that's interesting yes right. absolutely okay. um, all right so you're development executive but in a very different kind of entertainment company a radically different kind of entertainment company so? in some ways so um as you had said you know for the last hundred years uh, the movies generally got made through the what's called the studio system um, which had a, a very, very specific way of, of financing projects and developing projects. There was also the independent film uh, community, uh, which made films usually a, a much lower budget level, um, much more sort of character focused. Um, what my company does, um, and my company's name is Legion M. So uh, it's actually an M with a bar over it, which stands for one million. And the thing that sets us apart from the studio system and from the independent film world is that we take advantage of new SEC laws that allow for crowd-funded capitalization. Okay, so crowdfunding, people may be familiar from Kickstarter, from Indiegogo, that, and I used it, I had a gadget a couple of years ago when I raised a quarter million dollars for that gadget on it. So you basically put an idea out there and then the people who want to can put their money toward, in this case, buying a gadget. But in your case, it's, a, it's putting money toward actually making a film project happen or a TV project happen. Well, it's not, um, it's not a specific in the way that Kickstarter is. Uh, what we're doing is... We're going to the crowd to get funding for our company, which then invests in films, as opposed to you're actually investing in a particular movie. Which has also been done on Kickstarter, right? There have been movies that have been funded on Kickstarter. Certainly. Yeah. But the difference is, is that um, when you are funding something through Kickstarter or Indiegogo, you don't actually own a piece of that project. So uh, the the biggest example of this, of course, was Oculus, which was funded... Uh, which is through, the, the VR system that is now owned by Facebook, but was funded through a huge Kickstarter. Correct, and then was bought for several billion dollars. Um, and all the people who invested in that got an Oculus. Right. They didn't invest. They they basically pre-bought something before it existed. That is exactly correct. Right. So, and, if, and I should point out, I backed a, a documentary on Kickstarter on Joan Didion. 
you know, that I really was very interested in seeing. And basically what I got at the end was uh, a code for Netflix, which I already had, which would allow me to watch the documentary. So it's like, okay, I didn't own a piece of the documentary. No, but what you were doing, what you were leaning in on was the fact that you cared about it. And that's what Kickstarter does so well, is that it gets to, you know, what are the things that people are passionate about? So what we are attempting to do with Legion M, and we've had some success now, it'll be three years this March since we started, um, and since the law changed that allowed um, regular folk to invest in any kind of startup. Right, so crowd equity funding. Yes, so uh, what we are doing, what sets us apart as a production company is that we were formed from our initial idea to take advantage of the crowd Mm -hmm. and not just well-heeled millionaires who are the only people up until, you know, two and a half years ago, those were the only people who were allowed to invest in a startup. And so, yes, exactly. And a lot of this would be, you know, they would come into a startup, but they'd also come into film production. So you'd have these limited partnerships that would also fund some independent or even larger films. So it was a millionaire's game. It was a totally a millionaire's game. And what we felt is the passion that people feel when they get involved in a Kickstarter. We wanted to combine that emotional investment with a financial investment and see where that road takes us. And... You know, we opened, I was believe it was March 16th of 2016, and uh, it was the, the, you know, the new uh, crowdfunding rules. It's called the Jobs Act. We were the most successful, uh, not just entertainment company, but company. The offering that we, that we started out with was for, to raise a million dollars. We raised $1.7 million. We were oversubscribed, and of course, we gave back the money that... Uh, that, that was over one million. And we were shocked. And the thing that shocked us wasn't that we raised the money. It was that people around the country who got shares in Legion M, who became co-owners in this new kind of production company, self-organized. In each state, they found each other. I mean, obviously, we... Um, you know, we created forums and so forth by which they could communicate. And the people sought each other out to meet up and discuss their love of film together and communicate to us. Of course, if someone was interested enough to buy some of the equity crowdfunding, then they were going to be one person who was likely to be have a similar set of interests to someone else who was also involved. Exactly. It just makes sense. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of it beforehand, but afterwards, you're like, absolutely, it makes total sense. It's very funny that... Um, when we first got the company started, um, I had had a, a relationship with uh, the former editor in chief of Marvel Comics, Stan Lee. Um, and when Stan heard about it, I, I thought, okay, here's a guy who understands fandom. He understands passion uh, of people for you know a particular subject matter. And he said, "Man, that idea is so good. I wish I had thought of it." And, you know, for us, that really, uh, it really gave us a lot of uh, confidence that we were on the right uh, tack. All right. So you've raised a million dollars and films cost a lot more than Much more than that. A million dollars. So how then does that million dollars then become an entertainment production company, an empire? Yes. Um, So we realized that uh, even if we were to do multiple offerings, uh, it would take a, a great deal of time for us to get to the point 
uh, where we could completely finance our own projects. Now, the reason we were called Legion M with a bar over it, the million is, the aspiration is if we can get to a million investors, mm-hmm. which, is the, uh, which is the absolute opposite of what most companies want. They want as few investors as possible. But if we could create and unite film fans into a vibrant, engaged community, a legion of fans Mm. that's both emotionally and financially connected. We know that the minimum investment is $100, so that would be $100 million. But the average investment's $500. So that would be $500 million. So basically one James James Cameron movie uh, or or a lot of less expensive films. Well, what it is is it's essentially a studio once you have that level. But much more important than the money is the fact that you have a community of a million people who have a vested interest in every project that that company is doing to do well. And and since the game in film from day one and in television is getting the word out and getting bums on seats in movie theaters and in front of television sets, when you have a million people who are excited about whatever project because they have a stake in it, then they're going to be out there telling their friends, their neighbors, taking them to the movies. And they'll be there the first weekend, which will, in many cases, dictate the trajectory of any project that starts, mm-hmm. is that you, if you have a solid base of people who love something, it has a distinct advantage over any other product in the marketplace. Well, it changes. It also changes the entire narrative, right? Then the the trade press starts to say, "Oh, it has a very good weekend. This film has legs." And then and then the whole narrative isn't one of failure, but one of success. And in Hollywood, Hollywood loves a success story. Well, and this can loves ha- to tell them. Yeah, and this can happen even before it gets into theaters. Mm. So, for instance, um, we uh, invested in a film called Mandy which was directed by Panos Cosmatos and starred Nicolas Cage. And it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2017. And we had a a lounge at Sundance, and we had a very large number of investors who happened to be at the Sundance Film Festival. They knew you know, that this is a film that we were involved in, and they showed up, and they created the buzz that would you know go on to um, I mean it was actually the 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 highest rated critically uh, movie at Sundance that year it had like a ninety eight percent Rotten Tomatoes score. So there really is something about this virtuous cycle between having the fans be the investors and having them then connected and emotionally involved in what is, you know, films and television, they're emotional vehicles, right? They're not rational. I mean, they they can be rational that they tell a good story, but what they're doing is they're bringing our emotions out. But the key, the key is they have to be, they have to do exactly what you said. So we can't make a bad film a good film. No. But what we can take is a good film and amplify it. Right. Give it the audience that it deserves. Exactly. That's, and that's the difference between us and every other production company. So every other production company on earth has to go through the process of finding material, financing their material, then getting their material distributed either through a studio or through a separate distribution company. And then a marketer has to come in and market it. We already have the market. Does that then mean, because I think it's about a third of the cost of a major Hollywood film is going to be the marketing. Absolutely. And and more so if it's a really big super film, right? And 
so does that cost then dramatically lower for Legion M production because you have that market? Well, so we have released three films so far. And what we've been able to do, um, mostly because the founders of our company um, are from Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, for them, algorithms and testing is of paramount importance. So very much Google and Amazon's bailiwick here. We're talking about being able to give a lot of data. Well, we have a living focus group that continuously grows, mm-hmm. that gives us feedback at all times about what kind of projects we should be looking at. Um, we actually have scout programs. So if you are a member and you go to a film festival, you will tell us, you know, I mean... If you've got an army of people mm. doing something versus... How do you put that army to work? Yes, or, you know, say we were wanted to do a, an enormous practical joke. We had a comedy. We have all these people who are willing to do this for us. It's, I've, I've never encountered anything like it. I've been involved in the entertainment industry for 25 years. It has been the greatest pleasure working with these guys. So uh, to take this a little broader, I mean, I know we're talking about entertainment and this show is about entertainment, but in some ways, what if all corporations treated their shareholders this way, right? I mean, it seems obvious. Well, look, when uh, when Roy and Walt Disney got started, right. I mean, that's, that's actually what we say is getting involved with Legion M is like getting involved at the very beginning mm-hmm. when people have the greatest passion for something. I can go out and buy stocks for Disney, mm. But it, it doesn't mean I'm going to be there on the first day or I'm going to you know, cheer them on because I don't have that kind of connection with them. Well, because Disney has not evolved that kind. And this is what I'm saying. It's like, this is a huge miss. Disney has millions of shareholders. Millions. And they're not all institutional. There's lots of mom and pop shareholders who want to own a big entertainment company. And yet their relationship is basically an annual report. That's correct. They don't have the sense that I helped make that movie. And that's the key is everybody wants to that connection to, to, to things that are created. If, they're, if you're proud of something, you want to be able to say, you know, I, I helped do that. But let's turn that around because not all productions are successes and not all projects go well. Filmmaking is hard. Everything has to go right. So what happens when the things don't go right? Well, and this is why we ask people to invest in the company mm. versus into a, a particular project. Mm-hmm. Because diversity is the only way that you can kind of survive the ups and downs of these things. There are times when there's nothing you can do. Um, another movie comes out like Star Wars and it swallows up everything around it right. like a black hole. Right. Um, we've been lucky, uh, but we have seen um, the three fil- the three films we did. The second film was a, a really wonderful thriller starring David Tennant, who plays Doctor Who, mm-hmm. called Bad Samaritan. And this was directed by Dean Devlin, you know. Who, oh, yeah. Famous director as well. Famous director and producer. Uh, you know, he produced, um, you know, movies like... Um, Independence, Independence Day. Day. Yeah, <laughs> Dean Devlin's amazing. He produced Independence Day. He did the series Librarians, uh, The Patriot. And, you know, here's a guy who's seen it all. Um, he started with Stargate. Mm. And the reason that we got in business with him is because people don't realize this because he always did these big movies. But when he made Stargate, he had financed it independently. Mm. And he went to every studio, and every studio laughed at him, saying, nobody wants to see this. MGM happened to have a slot. And they said, we'll do it, but we're not going to promote it. He said, 
just allow me to promote this at all the comic book conventions. Mm. Actually, at that time in the early 90s, it was Star Trek conventions. Right, right, because there wasn't, and so what we're talking about now is the beginning of the modern. And well, it gets even more interesting is that he said, and let me advertise on the internet. And they said, what's the well, internet? That's exactly what they said. And in, if you, historically, Stargate is the very first movie mm. to have an internet page. Wow. So he got us immediately. Right. And he understood what we were trying to do. And we were able to, in a sense, um, be an additional marketing value. Mm-hmm. Um, when that movie came out, we had 130 meetups around the country. Now, our founders, uh, Jeff Hennison and Paul Scanlon, of course, had the tools to make the applications that allowed all of our investors to communicate with each, with each other so they could show up mm-hmm. on that first weekend. And although the movie didn't do well, we found out that in every single cinema mm-hmm. that Legion M members met at, mm-hmm. they all overperformed. Okay. And Dina afterwards said, look, I wish that I had given you guys my P&A, yeah. which is prints yeah. and advertising, yeah. the, the idea of promoting it. So we feel that this, com- this idea of creating this community that has both of these two functions, both, both an emotional function and a financial function, is really the future of entertainment and where things are going. Because the, the studio system really isn't sustainable. As you probably notice, most of the films that get made by the studios are $150 million and over. They're spectacle. They're things that... Um, yeah, and they're designed to perform well across the world because so much of the revenue comes in from China absolutely. now or from Europe. And, and so they can't be particular to a particular culture or whatever because they know that every time they make a decision like that, they're losing audience. Well, and they can't. It's harder for them to take risks. So what Legion M... The other thing that we're able to do is because that money comes directly from our investors, it doesn't have all of the kind of strings that money that the studios have on it, where they have a fiduciary duty to, you know, minimize costs, minimize risk, and maximize profit. And they want to monetize art. And we want to monetize art. That's, I mean, our the priorities of, of where this go are, are switched. So we can get behind directors like Panos Cosmatos. You know, here's a guy who did Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is a crazy acid trip. When he wanted to do Mandy, you know, nobody really took him seriously. But the company that that did back him, Spectre Vision, which is Elijah Wood's production company, came to us. And when we got involved in it, it became literally an overnight cult success. Something that had never happened before in, in the studio system is our distribution for that movie was called Day and Date, which means it came out in theaters and on video, not DVD, but on pay-per-view on the same day. And what happened was amazing was that people heard about it, mm-hmm. called up their theaters, and demanded that their outhouse theaters show it, even though it was on VOD. And that is a perfect example of what the future is going to be like, where the consumers have a say in the experience that they want. There are some movies and there are some you know, shows that are absolutely appropriate for TV, but there are some things that you want a communal experience with. It's, it's like our 
you know, our, our, our churches or what the churches were. This fee, you want to be able to go through that feeling together. And Legion M, we want to lean into that. And, you know, you're offering people not just the chance to go to church, but to be a member of it. I mean, you know, you own a piece of it. I mean, our animated logo is literally a mosaic of photographs of all of our investors. It, so you can, if you get a high enough resolution, you can find yourself there. And we'll put that up on the website. David, thank you very much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. Oh, it's my pleasure. When StartVR's Martin Taylor described his own work with Awake, he repeatedly referred to dreams. Our stories and our dreams form a continuum, and somewhere in that continuum, we can find all of our ways of telling stories. Voices by the fire, images on a screen, holograms in space, voices in your ears. When we tell ourselves stories, we remember our dreams, and our dreams, they give shape to the future. We'll be linking to Start VR's amazing VR production, Awake, and we'll also be linking to the website for David Baxter's firm, Legion M. So look for all of that on our website, nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about the future of our stories? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website or leave us a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Now, in our next episode, we'll bring you another in our new series about the future of automobiles, the next billion cars. Every automaker is rushing headlong into developing their own electric vehicles, but that's an expensive process, and the automobiles themselves are more expensive. So, are they all rushing off a cliff or heading to a new promised land of low-pollution performance? That's next time on The Next Billion Cars. On the episode after that, we'll be back with the next billion seconds with the first half of a double episode taking a look at the future of politics and the continuation of politics by other means. Then on the episode after that, we'll drop another episode of the next billion cars. We've got great shows coming every week. You'll want to be here to listen. Big thanks to Kane Tietzel, Nathan Anderson, Martin Taylor, and David Baxter for coming on to our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.